What is crack-a-lacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Pavalli coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Adam Cromwell this time. Not even supposed to be having a podcast at the moment. We are. We were supposed to, and they're still going to come at you Thursday night into Friday morning with our trade deadline winners and losers. But so much stuff happened Monday into Tuesday and, and on Sunday. I thought it made sense to sort of get to all of those moves. Um Already talked about the Cowboys Silver trade, the Norman Powell trade, so we're talking about the Kings Pacers trade and also the Blazers Pelicans trade specifically. Uh, before we, we'll also have a trade mailbag too, as I step on over uh, what I say, and I'll be doing these off the cuff since this was unplanned. I've not done a ton of research for most of these. Uh, there was one that I thought about a lot, which was very uh, thought-provoking questions when I saw it. So I, I gave it some some pre-thought, some prep before this. But this will mostly just be stream of conscious thoughts. Aside from I've actually written about the moves that happened on Tuesday. So if you want to go check those out, they're at bleachreport.com or my Twitter profile at Valley F-A-V-A-L-E. But I'll get into a lot of those thoughts here. Before we really get started and dig into this, um, please, please, pretty please with sugars on top. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcast. The ratings and reviews, the written reviews in addition to the ratings do help us out a lot. So if you're using Spotify, uh, rate us. If you're using iTunes, rate and review us. If you're not using iTunes, head over there anyway. Should you have access to it, search Hardwood Knox. Throw us a five-star rating, write a review. Um, we will read the reviews and take anything you say to heart, or if you have a note for us, we'll read it aloud on the podcast. You can also really help us out by following us on YouTube, youtube.com search hardwood knocks. We will come up trying to build that up and also join our discord. The link is in the podcast description. I've loosely started to promote it on Twitter, but there's a lot of discussion happening in there, particularly around the deadline. And, and there'll be a ton of stuff to talk about thereafter. So come join in, interact with the, the rest of our our listeners. We have a very, 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 very small portion of our listener base in there as of now, but it's been super active and we appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox, on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. Follow the Sports Math Network at the Sports Math and follow Adam at Frommel09. Again, all those social media accounts are in our podcast description. We're really trying to build up the YouTube, the Discord, and again, the ratings, reviews, and subscriptions to this podcast. And finally, Word of mouth helps a ton. Retweet promos that we're putting on Twitter. Tell people who you know are into basketball and the NBA at large about us. We think we do a pretty damn good job, or at least not an insufferable job, of covering the the NBA in its entirety and do so with a little bit of personality while also being thorough, but not taking it too serious. And if you disagree, hey, hit us in the reviews, but so long as you leave only a five-star rating. That is out of the way. So the way I'm going to break this down is we have a lot of overarching questions about these trades specifically. So as I tackle them in kind, I'm going to try and get uh, to any questions that pertain to them. And so I'll scroll through. I think we actually just had the most um, about the, uh, the the Kings Pacers trade, but let's start with the first trade that happened. And it, w- it was the, the Pelicans acquiring CJ McCollum from the Blazers who continue to tear their roster down the rumor is that they're not really rebuilding. They intend to reload around Damian Lillard. That'll be part of the calculus. Let's get to the details very quickly. The Blazers are sending CJ McCollum, Larry Nance Jr., and Tony Snell to the New Orleans Pelicans for Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Thomas Sadoransky, Didi Luzada, a 2022 first-round pick, and two second-rounders. Uh, the first rounder that New Orleans is sending to Portland is will only convey if it lands between numbers 5 and 14. That pick was originally lottery protected, owed to Charlotte. They reworked the protections on it. So now if it lands 5 to 14, it will go to 
uh, Portland. However, if it doesn't, if it lands one, two, three, four, or if it lands 15 through 30, uh, it will not go to Portland. And it's been phrased as that first round commitment will still be a first round commitment and it kicks in to the future. I I've yet to see the pick details on this, and I was going through it. This is you know 4 a.m. on on Wednesday morning at this point, and I haven't seen anything. If I missed it, you can get at me. But the Pelicans have a treasure trove of of picks here, so they, they can offer a lot of different things to Portland. Let's start with so that I can timestamp this uh, properly. Let's start with the Pelican side of this. I think there are negative connotations when you see a team that's not a contender give up a first round pick. And I just don't feel that way here. Um, I was listening to, and this wasn't actually the basis of what I wrote when I gave the Pelicans some favorable thoughts, but I was listening to the in the know podcast, another blue wire podcast hosted by Shamit Dua and Mason Ginsburg. Check it out. If you're interested in hearing more about the Pelicans and they noted that, uh, People killed the Pelicans for prioritizing cap space uh, and then missing out on Kyle Lowry this past summer, as an example. And so now the Pelicans go out and just get a guy in CJ McCollum who addresses a need, and people are worried about the luxury tax implications um, because they have inside of $6 million of room now below the luxury tax, inside of $8 million, I think, next year, if the, the sheet I have is correct. Uh, and so that's just like a, a big deal because the Pelicans aren't going to win a championship in one of the next two seasons. I don't care. Uh, I understand that CJ McCollum is expensive, uh, two years and basically $70 million left on on his deal. But he addresses a, a big need for the Pelicans who have quietly, their, their defense has outperformed their offense this season. A large part of that is Zion Williamson being out. An even bigger part of that is the fact that their backcourt rotation has been banged up and by and large, just absolute shit. Uh, they are 28th, their guards in combined three-point percentage, and no backcourt is less efficient when it comes to off-the-dribble jumpers this season. Those numbers are per NBA.com. And so, yeah, CJ is going to come in. I don't know if he helps a defense that's been you know, roughly league average for more for over their past 30 games, at least when you look at the numbers, they still struggled to get stops in the half court. That's been a little bit better since the new year. CJ's not going to help you control the glass. He's not going to help you. Uh, you know, he's going to be a risk if you're getting screen. He's not going to help you prevent opponents from getting out in transition. But, you know, and, and Josh Hart, you know, let's not lose sight of them giving him up here. He was important to how the Pelicans were defending in the way that they were defending. I just can't bring myself to care because the offense was the bigger need right now. And this CJ McCollum contract, one, they still have wiggle room under the tax. And two, he comes off the books when Zion Williams's next deal is going to kick in. And so I'm not going to get into the logistics of, oh, will Zion even be there? I'll just believe it if he wants out when I see it, because we've just never seen someone walk away from the type of money uh, from which you would have to walk away in essence. So and and just the injury this season to his foot and, and not having played, not knowing if he's going to play. He doesn't really have a ton of leverage to just be like, yeah, I'm going to let this ride. I'll play out on my qualifying offer and then enter unrestricted free agency. I just doubt that happens. And also, if that is something the Pelicans are worried about, you make a trade like this to try and maximize what's going on around him. I think McCollum is going to be a good fit. Uh, next to Zion, he's played off the ball a ton in Portland his whole career next to next to Dame. Uh, he is shooting better than 36.5% on off-the-dribble threes over each of the past two seasons. He's been a mid-range maestro. I don't concern myself with the way he's going to age as much, I guess, as others. He's 
a, a bucket getter for one, but 30 years is not necessarily ancient. And we're talking about a guy who doesn't necessarily have to adjust his game as he ages because it's not prodded on explosion or playing above the rim. It's basically just the opposite. It's smoothness, fluidity, craft. Um, so he gives the Pelican some, some of that, those in, in between shops. He can work as sort of a, a secondary setup, man. He's improved with that over the years. I don't know if you necessarily want him running units on, on your own. I think it depends on the defensive personnel that you're going to have around him here. As the guys on the Inville podcast did point out, there could be some overlap with Brandon Ingram offensively. That was just not something I gave a ton of consideration to when I was thinking about this trade in the moment. I just ultimately think, especially with Zion out for now, his experience, CJ, is playing in Portland next to Damian Lillard, but also having Anthony Simons there, seeing some of the guard rotations that they ran out. I don't. I just don't think he's going to have an issue fitting in here, and he, he fills this this huge need. And I ended up liking this deal for the Pelicans um, because they didn't give up a primetime asset. I was a huge Nikhil Alexander Walker fan, but he's just like chaotically erratic at this point. And unless he's going to learn to be more of a complimentary player who doesn't need the ball in his hands, um, they've gotten a player who can now do that in CJ. Josh Hart is a loss to be sure. And he was on a, a friendly contract, uh, a non-guaranteed salary for next season before a player option the following season after that. One of the weirdest deals, by the way, that I could remember where there's only one season guaranteed, but the second is team control and the third is a player option. Um, interesting structure there. I was surprised that he didn't get like multi-year guaranteed money worth more than that on the market this past summer. Neither here nor there. He's not a player that you necessarily quibble about losing. And he's all, he's he's one of those guys where you think in theory he is shooting better from three-point range than he actually is without fail every single season. And so there's a real upgrade here. And unless I find out that the, the pick that Portland gave up um, is like, I don't even like an unprotected pick next season or like theirs. I, I I'm not going to be able to hate this deal. In fact, I like it. I know people have mentioned that maybe they'll reroute Larry Nance jr. Given that Jackson Hayes has played a lot better. They have Jonas Valanciunas and then Zion Williamson long-term. I just, I wrote about this, the, the front line lineup packages, they can now roll out there. I love them. And I, I would keep Larry Nance jr. And I mean, someone to give you a first round pick for him or blow you away with, an offer that continues to upgrade your backcourt or deepen your your wing rotation, um, then maybe consider it. But I don't have a problem with them just keeping Larry Nance Jr. Um, he's been banged up again as as he want to be, as he tends to be. You could also try moving him over the offseason or into next season once Zion comes back and you have a better feel for what this team is. There's still another year at sub ten million dollars at sub mid level money at this point on his contract. And so that was another huge part of this. This is just, this is not a throwaway player. The, the Blazers gave up a first round pick to get Larry Nash Jr. over the summer, a trade again, that I liked for them because there's going to be some criticism or at least confusion with the Blazers coming up. And so I just don't, I, I don't understand what the actual problem is with this deal. The opportunity cost wasn't too high. Yes. They're paying CJ, but like your books just become flexible again. And, in two years, there are extensions that can happen and things, but we're talking about the first year of Zion Williamson's next deal, which also just happens to be the final season of um, Brandon Ingram's. Excuse me, CJ McCollum is, excuse me, I'm misspeaking. CJ McCollum's off the books the year after Zion Williamson's deal kicks in and the year after um, with two years left on Brandon Ingram's contract. So just to clarify, I'm stumbling through that. 
McCollum, the final year of his contract will also be the first of Zion's big deal. So you do have a year where you could be incredibly expensive, but there's wiggle room to deal with next season. And look, you worry just about that when the time comes. You have Devontae Graham, the year that we're talking about, 2023-2024. Again, that projects to be the first year of Zion's next deal. You have Devontae Graham at 12.1 million, Valanchunas at 15.4, Brandon Ingram at 33.8, and CJ McCollum at 35.8. The McCollum one is egregious. Um, the Brandon Ingram one is is very high. You'll have Zion on a max, presumably. None of those deals are removable. McCollum will be in his age 32 season, but unless he sucks as an expiring contract, you could still probably break him up into smaller ones or there are something you can do there. Brandon Ingram is going to be young enough to where if he's continuing to play it at this level, uh, you're going to be able to move him when he has two years left on his deal, including that one. And then Valanchunas and Devontae Graham, that's technically the final year of Graham's deal. There's a non-guarantee in his fourth year. Those are both expiring contracts that you can move there. Well, Jonas will definitely be a quality player. Graham shot making has suffered. I'm interested to see if he's maybe the person who benefits a lot from CJ being here just to sort of clean up his shot quality. I also don't know why you would play those two together that often, certainly starting them for now. But just if you have the option, I would probably want Devontae Graham leading the second unit. You could use it as CJ, but he's just making so much money that doesn't really track with me. And that will be the concern is how do they sort of defend like this? They don't have a ton of great options. Herb Jones is an absolute monster and is, it might be candidate. I'm not talking about just like rookie, uh, an all rookie team. He might be just an all defensive candidate period. Again, I haven't gone through that yet though. And you still do have Trey Murphy on this roster who gives you some positional malleability. It's not outside the realm of possibility where if you actually start playing him heavy minutes, yeah, he can log some time for you at the two. And so they have a lot of options here. And I don't think they tethered themselves to anything too restrictive, just to be honest with you. If you have a problem with them, with the opportunity cost here, I honestly don't know what to tell you. Cash space isn't going to mean as much in a market like New Orleans. We just saw it this past summer and they went out, they got a higher quality player who's been a proven performer through a lot of postseason games. If he's healthy, the, the Pelicans who project to make the play-in at this point, when you kind of look at how the rest of the Western Conference is settled below them, they might be able to cause some problems. I mean, just in offense, what if we get to see a lineup of McCollum, Ingram, Valanchunas, and Zion Williamson, and then I'd rather see Herb Jones in there, but like if, that, if Devontae Graham is on the court for those minutes, like that lineup is going to be absolutely bonkers when it comes to scoring. Good luck keeping, keeping up with them there. And you now have this variety of ways that you can close games if you do, in fact, keep Larry Nance Jr. Could we maybe see some small ball five from him where, no, you don't want to put uh, Jonas Valanciunas on the bench ne necessarily, but if Zion comes back, then Nance Zion front court with maybe Herb Jones on there as well is something I desperately would want to see. I like this trade for the Pelicans. I It's an acceleration, I guess, but it's not an egregious one. I don't view it as David Griffin making this panic move. I know people believe he's on the hot seat, and he probably is. I just, again, what was the primetime asset they gave up here? It, is it Josh Hart? Is it Nikhil Alexander-Walker? Like, do you think he's going to blow up? Is it, I suppose, if they send a lottery pick, like that is that is something to give up a lottery pick for CJ McCollum, but you also got Larry Nance Jr. as part of this equation. So we romanticize picks. The Pelicans have a ton of them. Um, they were built for sort of a consolidation trade, and this is just like that in miniature. It's nothing that's too much of a home run swing, but it's better than a needless single here. So I really liked the deal for them. I struggled to love it for Portland. I think, and I mentioned this on my our last podcast, Tarabone Biggs from We Have a Take does a fantastic job covering the Blazers and talking about 
um, so many elements of the NBA, including some just more offbeat and fun, uh, light angles that I, I really that really provide a nice break for me. In addition to again, just solid hoops analysis. If you listen to this podcast, you know who Tara is. She has pointed out that they have chosen a direction, and there is value in that. I I agree. They were sort of we've mentioned this in the podcast before too, just tottering in this weird area in which they were hitting singles and doubles, but never going for triples and home runs. This is not a triple or a home run, but it sets you up to make that move. You could have more than $60 million in cap space this summer. You have this big ass trade exception. Now um, there look, when you're listening to this, maybe it's dated already. Like you just have expiring contracts galore at this point. Also an Eric Bledsoe, Thomas Adaransky, um, you have an extra first round pick in your clip uh, to be determined when it conveys that that you can move. So they can continue to do things. And rumor has it per, I think it was multiple reports that they're still looking to kind of compete around Dame next season, making this a one-year tank. They'll keep their pick that's lottery protected to Chicago at the moment. There's real thought behind that. I just think where I ultimately landed with the, with the Blazers on this is it may be the right direction that they're headed, or maybe this was necessary and the newfound flexibility is valuable, but I just feel like they're carving out a less than efficient path to try getting where they're going. I kind of feel like they didn't need to do both of these Powell and McCollum trades where they're not getting just a ton of value outside of that flexibility back again, you really have to fall in love with Josh Hart or Nikhil Alexander Walker, Keon Johnson, or, or that first round pick that New Orleans is sending. And it's more of a hodgepodge than something that's like this central asset that may say more about the market or the length of Norman Powell's deal, uh, just because he had four years on it after this one. And CJ McCollum is, is 30 and he's on the smaller end for someone who's more of an, uh, a two guard off guard, whatever you, you want to call him. Uh, and was just so expensive in general. I you could have you could have ducked the tax this season and sort of reevaluated in the offseason when there would have been more roster flexibility around the NBA and perhaps more suitors willing to certainly go after Norman Powell. If this was the CJ trade you consigned yourself to. Uh, I know Norman Powell's game is predicated on more explosion, but I'm not necessarily worried about the way he ages, especially when we've seen the way that Eric Gordon has aged. There have been injuries, but he's still able to put legit pressure on the rim. I know those are two different players, but like they play sort of the same style where you don't know, you don't necessarily want them creating, but he puts pressure on the rim and, and can hit, hit threes. So I'm more optimistic there than most people. And maybe it just turns out that this was the necessary path, that this was the correct path. And right now though, it, it feels sort of underwhelming and I don't like necessarily zooming out to look back at oh, these are what the assets were and these are what the Blazers turned into them. But the window that we're looking at here is so truncated that I, I can't help but think that way. And so dating back to the 2020 offseason when they first traded for Robert Covington, these are the original assets. They've now effectively turned CJ McCollum, Gary Trent Jr., and three first-round picks into Josh Hart, Keon Johnson, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Didi Luzada, Jesse Salinslow, Eric Bledsoe, Thomas Adaransky, a first-round pick, three second-round picks, that big-ass trade exception, which maybe they'll use to get Jeremy Grant, and then more than $50 million in cap space this summer. As my friend and colleague Brian Toporek likes to say, if the Blazers are lucky, they might be able to parlay that cap space or that pick 
or that huge trade exception into players who are just as good as CJ McCollum or, or Gary Trent Jr. So, or some of the players that became part of this trade tree, a Norman Powell, for instance, a Larry Nance Jr., for instance. That is, it's underwhelming in some right now. And we can wait until after Thursday to look at the bigger picture. I'm not even shitting on the thought process here because the Blazers were. Maybe they got frisky if Dame ever came back and was healthy or if they were ever at full strength. They saw an uptick in play from Robert Covington off the bench before they traded him. Yusuf Nurkic is, you know, when you look at his numbers, he's been really good um, for this past, like, recent portion of the season as well. Were they a contender? No. And I liked a lot of the moves they made on an individual scale, but now that they're sort of just divesting them, I'm confused. And it felt it feels like the, the kindest thing I can say is they went one too far or we need to fast forward to really see what these deals are going to become. And you could say that about any trade and it's fair that maybe we'll look back and this is a terrible take. I also recognize that Joe Cronin is inheriting a lot of the logistical obstacles here. Um, That's not going to change how I feel about the value he's gotten in tearing down the Blazers. Again, the direction itself as Tara's astutely reminded me is valuable and she's 100% right. And that's not something that I necessarily gave enough credence to in the beginning before speaking with her. Um, however, the means by which they're getting there, they just feel too slapdash, too, too haphazard, too, too confusing, too uncertain, too, too ambiguous. And I need to have more clarity. The other element of this, if you, you know, want to look that way, is they now are going to pay Anthony Simons. He's had a spectacular year. He's hitting more of his off-the-dribble threes in recent weeks. He's shown that he can knock down stuff off the catch. He's re- I think he's really improved his passing. He's um, deferring on a higher percentage of his drives. His assist percentage is higher. He has benefited from playing alongside guys like a Yusuf Nurkic or Norman Powell or CJ or Dame who can take the one dribbles and hit shots. And then he gets credit for the assist. They're not these super complicated passes, but this is also not the same player we saw in previous years who was pretty limited there. That's fine. Um, and that the Blazers wanted to plan around this. They could have kept him anyway. And then you figure out your tax situation if you needed to then, it is pretty clear, though, I would think that they're, I would be shocked if they don't re-sign him this summer, uh, if, if they're looking at sign-and-trade scenarios because of Detroit maybe comes calling and likes the idea of him next to Cade Cunningham, which, you know, frankly, I don't hate, depending, <laughs> depending on the co- cost there. Um, even in Indiana, now, well, they were teamed with cap space before they took on Buddy Heald, so never mind. But yeah, um, there's just not going to be like a ton of teams with cap space at the moment, and I would just be surprised if the entire point of these moves uh, feels like they needed the Blazers wanted to reset. That's what Joe Cronin wanted to do, but also they're planning around Anthony Simons' next contract. And so I'd be floored if, if he's not there. I know people are just going to assume that this makes Dane more available. We got to get the jokes are fine. Honestly, they can be disingenuous. That's not going to bother me. They'll probably piss off some Blazers fans. Um, if it's really all in good jest and you're not taking it too seriously. But if you actually believe the Blazers weren't in constant contact with Damian Lillard throughout this process, I don't really know what to tell you. And that, to me, signals a, a couple of things. He's either on board with this, which is not hard to envision if they're selling him on this sort of one-year tank while he's um, recovering from abdominal surgery. Uh, and then also they're planning on giving him the two-year max extension that he wants over the offseason. That's that's a very believable route. Or they've now given him an out. I'm not going to predict that he requests a trade uh, imminently, but now he gets to leave, and there's just there's zero criticism. It's a guilt-free path towards the exit. And he was probably always going to be absolved of more blame than most who have asked for out 
uh, just because of the connection he's had with the team and how much we know that he's valued as a teammate. Although as an aside, there was an interview, uh, the Raptors podcast, and I think it showed on TSN was talking to Gary Trent Jr.'s dad. And he was lamenting the lack of joy GTJ was playing with in Portland towards the end, which just makes me want to say, fuck you, Neil. I don't know what you did. Um, sorry, quick, quick tangent there. Uh, but yeah, like there still would have been the, oh, you Dame ran from the grind or whatever, send tweet. That stuff will still be out there, but it'll hold less weight now because Damian Lillard has stuck around like past CJ McCollum. It's it's a teardown. Are the Blazers kind of forcing him out? That's how it could be viewed. I, I honestly don't think they are. I think they truly believe that they can um, rebuild this thing quickly or reset it, reinvent it, whatever the hell, restructure it, whatever the hell it's called these days. I don't know that they're right. I need to see what they turn all this newfound flexibility into first. But I, I do think that Dame's like sort of a low key winner here. That he's either going to get paid this off season, uh, he's either going to be on a different team, a team that's angling for something bigger, even if it takes a you know not just this season but next season, or now he's just can request a trade without feeling bad. The Blazers decided to go this route. You look at his age, the the point at which he is in his career, and you wouldn't be able to blame him for saying, hey, I'd rather play on a team better fit to contend or even flirt with contending for, for a title. And so I think that's an interesting element of all this and something we will need to watch. I'll go through really quick. I don't think we had any specific questions on this trade, actually, so I was just going to talk about it. We have... Um, a ton of questions on this Kings Pacers trade though. So let's get to the details of the Kings Pacers trade. The Pacers are sending Domas Sabonis, Justin holiday, Jeremy lamb and a 2027 second round pick to the Sacramento Kings for Tyrese Halliburton, buddy healed and Tristan Thompson. Another side of this deals. Indiana has created a $10.5 million traded player exception. The questions let's look at the general runs. Luke street asked, can we just force the Kings owner, Vivek Ranadive, to sell and move the team to Seattle? Really quickly there, I'm not a proponent of relocation. I want expansion. Get Seattle team. I don't want it to come at the expense of any current NBA market. I think there's enough ta- talent for expansion, but we'll get to the, the crux of Luke's question, of course. Um, we also have a question from Burb. Why are the Kings just sending their franchise back years with this move, Oof, not a lot of love for the not a lot of love for the Kings in this. And I believe we have a couple of other questions from Discord as well. There's another plug for the uh, for the Discord. So, blah blah blah. Maybe we don't have any Kings question. Uh, oh, we do have one from Salamander the fourth, but it's a ranking Kings mistakes question. If anyone else asks a general question on the Kings, I'm looping yours into here. So we'll get to Salamander the fourth question at the end of this segment. And I guess we'll be- um, begin with the Kings. And we do have a Pacers question on this as well. Um, so let's work through it that way. I gave the Kings a to be determined grade on this. There's an immediate inclination to scribble Kings and just move on. I get it. They are trading no worse than their second most important building block for a two-time all-star who portends as a questionable fit alongside De'Aaron Fox that feels painfully on brand and stupid in so many ways. At the same time, this is the Kings, in some respects, finally doing, or at least attempting to do, what's been demanded of them for approximately forever at this point, and that's 
and I wrote this verbatim, something, anything, literally at all, that implies disdain toward contending for only 10th place finishes and still coming up short by that low bar. They're getting the best player in this deal. Domas Sabonis is 25. He's a two-time All-Star. Uh, he wanted to be in California per multiple reports. Uh, he uh, It can be the central nervous system of an offense. Like This is someone there's... I think people don't understand how physical he is, sometimes how much of a good screen setter he is, but he can navigate the floor with the ball in his hands from, from pretty much anywhere. And then there's also just like his passing. Uh, he can devastate from standstill. That's the best way I could describe his passing. All of this being said, also, he's under contract for another two years at just like a very reasonable cost. So he was the best player in this deal. The Kings went after the higher end talent. And I, I get that. But the fit is also questionable alongside De'Aaron Fox. I caught a lot of shit from, not a lot of shit, but some Kings fans on Twitter saying that I was overestimating the struggles that Fox and Sabonis would go through together. Maybe I am, but the best way to optimize Sabonis is to surround him with shooting and cutting. You're bringing some of that over in Justin Holiday, maybe Jeremy Lamb, depending depending on the day or if the Kings play him. But like, there isn't a whole lot else. You can picture like De'Aaron Fox, you know, just blurring around away from the ball. But do the Kings have the half court spacing for him to do that? They traded away their two leaders in three point makes in Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton. I'm not. I'm not lampooning that decision. I'm sure getting rid of Buddy Heald was a side benefit for them, just given his body language and um, over the course of the past couple of seasons. It just seemed like this was fait complete for for divorce. They tried to trade him to the Lakers over the offseason, but LA pivoted into that uh, disastrous Russell Westbrook trade and just so many other decisions. That front office in LA, my fucking God. Anyway, the talent play the Kings are making without surrendering a future draft pick is bold and is arguably necessary. To me, though, this is not totally clarifying, and that's really the, the main problem there. I think there's going to be a struggle with Sabonis, who uh, he is shooting roughly like 31% from deep over the past three seasons, and those come on just two attempts per game. He's only shot above 40% from mid-range twice in his career and not since 2019, 2020 and mid range looks have never just accounted for the huge volume of his offense. His floor game will help them there, but you do still need space to operate. And Oh, Rashawn Holmes is still there as of this recording. Maybe they reroute him, but that's going to be an even clunkier fit than Sabonis and Turner who were like, yeah, they tried to sometimes occupy the same spaces on offense, but they were two very different players who still worked sort of well together. And that did feel a lot like, Miles Turner felt like he wasn't being maximized or at least featured enough. So that would be an even tougher fit if Sacramento plans on playing Sabonis and Holmes together the rest of the season. You're also now left with just two players on the Kings shooting above average clips from three. So above 34.9% from deep for the season on at least one attempt, uh, one attempt per game. Harrison Barnes and Justin Holiday, newcomer Justin Holiday. That is not enough shooting. And you're still, to me, you're still light on wings. You have Justin Holiday. I don't consider Jeremy Lamb a wing. I don't consider Harrison Barr a wing, to be honest with you. I think he's more of this like fringe big, someone who should play before. You can even argue that Justin Holiday is like more of a swing man, but he had he had at times logged back up four minutes with Indy and he can definitely play some three. So I I won't you know crucify the Kings for for that. There are still voids on this roster. We need to see what they do from here. And there's also the element of, and this probably just dips like too far into what the, the Pacers are, and I will get to them in a second. Halliburton was really fucking good 
And it's just interesting that Monty McNair and crew made this decision now when they're responsible for fighting Tyrese Halliburton at number 12. He is one of the most efficient off the dribble shooters this season. I think it's fair to say that he doesn't look for his own shot enough, but he can still run an offense with his passing. He throws good lobs. He can hit guys on, on dives. Um, we've seen him just forge good chemistry. I feel like with every single one of Sacramento's bigs based off what I've, I've seen from him, uh, just offloading him age 21, two more years left on his rookie scale. That is, it, it's a, it's an interesting decision. It's a bold decision. That's the word we used before. Now you're tethered to like, are you paying De'Aaron Fox and Damian Mitchell together indefinitely? And Fox just returned from, I think it was an ankle injury. That's not, you're not getting enough shooting from them. How does this even impact De'Aaron Fox? Is he going to be displaced from the ball because they want to run through as a bonus? I just don't know that Sacramento has the half court spacing to, to maximize that. Uh, are you staggering their minutes more heavily? That sort of defeats the purpose of having to, what the King clearly consider all-star caliber players. I don't know whether this trade was more about the opportunity to get Sabonis or if it was Sacramento picking Fox over Halliburton. I'm just going to assume it's the former because they didn't need to make the latter decision. Halliburton and Fox can work, but that was not among the many problems that the Kings have. That was not one of them. Uh, this trade also, I don't think it helps or hurts their defense. Sabonis is, I don't know if I'd call him an underrated defender, but he's not like nailed to the floor when he's trying to move and especially if he gets to play like at the five um he should be fine now that you don't have miles turner should you want to pair him with another big and that big is Bertrand holmes that's going to get a little bit dice here uh, but i think the kings are probably a net neutral on defense which is to say they're still going to suck uh maybe they'll be a little bit better just because they have some bonuses rebounding now that might be something to to consider but i don't know what to make of this trade i'm not i I'm going to default, let me be clear, to skepticism. The Kings gave up a lot, and I love Tyrese Halliburton. I don't think he has a defined peak in sort of the best possible way. Like This is someone who I still believe can be a star. I've seen people think that he just doesn't have that killer mode on the ball to reach that level, and maybe they're right. But my God, what we've seen from him so far, promising enough for me to think that it's at least a, still a possibility. And to punt on that now when Sabonis... Yeah, I don't know if he helps you like re-enter the play-in discussion this year. And I don't really know what he sets you up for moving forward. However, he is a higher-end talent, and you've now committed to like an all-in-ish type play, or you've made a bigger picture decision that people pushed you to make. It wasn't Fox or Halliburton type deal, but it was this team needs to do something, anything seismic to just prove that the status quo isn't good enough. We'll just have to see how they react. To this and I I give them a to be determined, but I am skeptical. The way I phrased it was I have an open yet cautious mind with this. I wouldn't have made this deal if I was Sacramento, but that certainly this applies to everything. But in this case specifically, where many people are killing the Kings, um, that doesn't mean that it was necessarily the wrong move. It it needs to really play out. Speaking of which, Salamander the fourth in Discord asked, Can you rank Sacramento Kings mistakes? And the ones he listed are trading Halley, not drafting Doncic, uh, first round pick Thompson, Landry, and Sauce Castillo salary dump for cap space, firing Malone um, when Boogie was sick, not drafting Lillard as we didn't know if we had the money to re-sign Jason Thompson, so had to pick a forward. And then six, letting Bogdan Bogdanovich walk for nothing. So the biggest mistake is not drafting Luka Doncic. It was clear among many draft Knicks and even those just like who only 
crash um, study for the draft leading up to that. Luka Doncic was the highest end and probably best player in that draft. You even could have gone the Trey Young route, but you go with Marvin Bagley. That was a huge blunder on Vladi Divox's mistake and potentially set the Kings back like years and years and years. Um, has it put them in a hole from which they can't climb out of? We'll have to wait and see. Doncic could have fit alongside De'Aaron Fox. You think some bonus can fit alongside De'Aaron Fox? Luka Doncic certainly could have as well. I think number two was definitely, I think that was the 2015 offseason where they they went to great lengths to create cap space, thinking that they were going to end up with all these great players. And like Rondo was their crowning acquisition of that offseason. That is definitely number two for me. I'm going to say number three is firing Mike Malone. Like that was a team that had an identity and someone who had like, built a real relationship with your franchise player at the time of Boogie Cousins, and you just got rid of him because the roster was banged up and you were still within sniffing, different, sniffing distance of 500 at the time, if I'm not mistaken. That was fucking stupid. If you want to put that at number two, I'm with you. I'm going to conservatively just put the Tyrese Halliburton trade here. Three might be high without seeing how this plays out, but I think that speaks more to how I view Tyrese Halliburton. Um, it's just, it's tough because Sabonis is so good that I don't want to diminish what he's able to do on the court. I just don't love the fit. And you had someone who was not only fit for the roster, but is a fit for any roster. And you, you traded him um, at age 21. And so you got a little bit older at the top end of this trade. I know Buddy Heels like 80 or whatever he is now. So maybe you got a little younger with getting Jeremy Lamb and Justin Holiday and giving up Tristan Thompson in the process. But it might be a net neutral age. I have not calculated that. But I'm putting Halliburton here because I think he's going to be, he has the chance to become the type of player that makes the Kings regret this trade for an, an incredibly long time. I'm then going to say letting Bogdanovich walk for nothing. I just don't, that's sort of a meh to me. And the only reason I'm not putting it last is because I think you have to put Lillard there because if I'm not mistaken, he just was, he was even viewed as sort of like a risk when the Blazers took him at number 10, I believe it was. Again, I'm, I'm doing these off the cuff and, and from memory. So if, if it wasn't number 10, he was drafted 2012. Oh, he was drafted pick number six. I'm an idiot. I, I don't know. I still remember people thinking like him coming out of Weber State, a four year player. Was that too high? Um, if you want to put that at number five, I just don't, I just don't know that he was the obvious pick, and maybe I'm misremembering because I'd only just started covering the the league at that point, and it's easy to just look back and say, "Oh wow, taking Thomas Robinson over Damian Lillard." Um, I don't know if the Warriors would have taken him if they were in the Kings' position. Like they still maybe would have drafted Harrison Barnes. Um, Bradley Beal was definitely someone, you know, Anthony Davis and Bradley Beal, that was just known as that draft and everyone was tripping over themselves for beyond waiters. And I remember everyone falling in love with Thomas Robinson. I'm just, I'm more forgiving on that type of a miss when I don't think Damian Lord was the consensus pick there. Uh, that's more of a, what if type of moment. And I just, I'm not sure how much I'm prepared to ding the Kings for it. Although I thought Damian Lord was drafted 10th for a second, which was, I guess, making me think that he's Austin Rivers. So, and look, there are a lot of landmines in this draft. I mean, the Kings could have ended up with like, you know, what if they had taken Andre Drummond and he ended up carving out a better career than Thomas Robinson, but that might've been more dangerous um, to them, just knowing that they had another quality player. Uh, I also believe if I'm not, you know, Harrison Barnes would have been a fine pick there for them. But like, what would Terrence Ross 
have done for them. Uh, he was the eighth pick in that draft. Maybe that's about an average outcome as a player. Could they have taken Austin Rivers? I don't remember him being in a conversation at the top. Um, they could have, you know, maybe Cleveland doesn't take Deion Waiters and they end up with him. That wouldn't have done anything. Uh, this was the Davis Beal Lillard draft. And that's no disrespect to, to Harrison Barnes. And I just, of Davis and Beal being obvious picks, uh, Damian Lillard was not as obvious. It's not the level of, oh, Draymond Green went at number 35. I, I totally understand that. Uh, but, or Will Barton dropping to number 40, or Middleton was in this draft too, right? He was middle of second round in that too. So, like, Damian Lillard was clearly closer to the top of those boards than not. I don't remember him being the, the consensus to, decision there. So that was an interesting question. It was also a reminder that the Kings have made an awful lot of uh, fucking mistakes. The Pacers end of this though, and we'll have, we have a question on the Pacers uh, pace. Oh, actually another Kings question from comeback Orlando Vooch. As it seems the Kings want to start winning now, does it still make sense for them to move Barnes to where and what's the return they'll be asking for? I don't think that it's the, it's the right move to move Harrison Barnes. If you want to win, he's just like, he makes a lot of sense alongside Sabonis. If you're using him at the five, um, he is like their best three point shooter now at this point. So I don't know why you get rid of him. You also probably need his, his defense more. I mean, you have Justin holiday now, so I, I don't think the Kings got worse defensively much worse. If at all worse as part of this trade, maybe they even, again, maybe they even improved a little bit. If you are going to move Harrison Barnes, like, first round pick and player that you're willing to keep is like Minnesota willing to do a first and Jane McDaniels for Harrison Barnes. I know that they're really high on Jane McDaniels, but it's become pretty clear that he's not like this efficient high volume three point shooter. So maybe they're more willing to make a deal like that, but that if you get an offer for Barnes, such as that, or if the Knicks are willing to, you know, give you salary and like consolidate some of the, the picks that they still have left over, they got rid of Charlotte, but they have Dallas's in 2023. And then, all of their own. And they have a couple enticing seconds as well. So if it's like sort of that type of a trade um, or maybe are they willing to get like, it, it, I would say if you're leaning into a rebuild, like, yeah, maybe you're intrigued by in Obi Toppin, but to play alongside a bonus, uh, but you're not, and you're trying to win. So I would definitely keep Harrison Barnes. That's a great question though, because this effectively takes uh, Harrison Barnes off the board then. And you have to imagine that between he and Jeremy Grant, were just considered like the top at like, prizes i hate calling players prizes but like the top potential gets additions at those like bigger wing spots or the guys who can play the three four and maybe grant even thought could be a five and can even take on guarding some twos barnes is not going to do either of those things um, and now he's off the board and so i wonder if that drums up the asking price for for jeremy grant or maybe the market is just sort of that stale but yeah i, I would be pretty surprised if sacramento ended up moving uh Harrison Barnes at this point. So, and to address Luke's question, if we didn't already, like, I just don't think the move can be billed as that much of a blunder at this point. And I don't know that this doesn't, I don't know that this is Vivek's call. I would assume it's Monty McNair's. I know Rana Dive has to sign off on it, but like McNair is like, this is a victory lap for him. Then Tyrese Halliburton draft pick is this monstrous victory lap. And so, um, uh, the front office would always fall on the sword anyway. But yeah, it's I for Kings fans, they were broken up about losing Halliburton. I don't blame them. And I I hope that their fortunes change soon because there is, you know, there are that fan base, there are some that will talk themselves in any King moves, but I would any move the Kings make, sorry, but I would categorize the 
Kings fan base is just one of the more collectively self-aware ones that tries to find like the bright spots where they can, but they understand that this organization is really fucked up time and again. And so that sort of just blows for them. The Pacers end of this, I think this was more of a no brainer from them. Even if you didn't think that Sabonis was the most likely core player to go, um, if they were able to get the value that they did from him, which is, I know buddy Heald makes a lot of money over the next few years, but if you're going to overpay for something, overpay for functional shooting. Uh, he, you know, it's, I think on this season he is, what is he shooting? He's in the sem- like in the, he's above average when he's shooting coming around screens. I think he's in like the 60 something percentile. And so he gives you reliable there. It's just functional shooting. He can take some off the dribble in transition. And then of course, just like really down them off the catch. So that seemed like a, I, that didn't seem like an egregious take on, for them. And now you have Halliburton who just fits so seamlessly to the point that maybe you don't move miles Turner. Now, maybe you don't even move Malcolm Brogdon. I know people have talked about, you have Chris Duarte. Uh, is it a matter of just getting a, a little bit younger, even though Brogdon and, and Brogdon is sort of like aged out of that rebuild type thing. We probably forget how young Turner is. He likes a bonus is only 25. I just, the Pacers have now set themselves up to maybe have a top five pick this season and then you just go into the off season and next year, you can keep this roster intact. Maybe bring back TJ Warren. Should he be healthy? He's going to be a free agent and you just have a ton of talent to where maybe you can make some noise in the East. They have that extra first round pick from Cleveland, not to mention a pick in the thirties now from the Rockets by way of Cleveland. Uh, there are a lot of different ways they could play this. They could also continue the, the full on rebuild. Yes. You move Brogdon over the summer. He can't be uh, over the off season. He can't be traded now because of the extension that he signed maybe move Turner at that point. I ultimately think that this move is a blow to miles Turner suitors just because he was injured to begin with. And so unless the paces were going to settle, um, I don't know that they would have moved him anyway, but also he is the primary center. Woj said he's excited to be that now. So he comes back from his foot injury this season. I'm really hoping to get to see him play with Tyrese Halliburton. And there's just so much spacing on this roster now where in Miles Turner lineups anyway, where that, that could have always been the case, but now you're not playing with Sabonis, who is not as much of a three-point threat when you're having him fan out to the corner or or whatever he's doing when he's not on the ball. Him and Turner wanting to occupy the same spaces, even though that Turner cannot do like what Domas Sabonis can do with the ball in his hands. Things just get a lot clearer in Indy. And I, I would phrase it this way. When you view this, on top of the two top 35 picks they got for Karis Levert, the choice of how they want to play this sort of a one-year tank and then go right back to competing like they've traditionally done under Herb, Herb Simon, minus the one-year tank, of course. Or if you want to go the longer-term route, the choice is Indiana's, and I just don't know that there's a wrong answer at this point for them. And just to illustrate how good Tyrese Halliburton is off the dribble, he's shooting 40.1% on off the bounce threes among everyone who's attempted at least a hundred of those shots. Only Mike Conley is knocking them down at a higher clip. 43.5%, by the way, that's fucking incredible for someone at his age. He's been low key monsters, maybe not low key, but he's been a monster this season. And look, maybe Indiana's not done. The question that we have from Strops in our discord, what can the Pacers flip buddy healed for anything? I'm going to die on this hill and say that, yeah, they they could get stuff for Buddy Heald. Uh, I know that his contract is on the larger side. It's He's in the middle of an extension that guaranteed him $94 million. But it's like I said before, overpay 
excuse me, I'm yawning for shooting. If you overpay for, for anything, he's at downing more than 39% of his spot up threes, 38 plus percent on pull up threes. And he's going to consistently torture defenses coming around screens. I don't mind Indiana keeping him. There's they're probably reticent to play a lot of minutes with Duarte or healed at the three. You put either one of those guys though next to Brogdon and Halliburton, and you just have such a dynamic offense. Assuming that Miles Turner's on the floor, I almost don't care who you're playing at the four. Although it'd be interesting to see TJ Warren in that situation. The there could be suitors for him though. Uh, Does a Memphis, if Indiana's willing to accept just like expiring contracts and none, like no first round compensation, if the Pacers are still sort of interested in being ultra flexible with cap space over the summer. I think Memphis could use someone like him as they gear up for the playoff run where it's, they're making sort of the, the Kings play, but it's less drastic. You're not going all in, but you're taking a bigger swing. Yeah. It's not the Kings play whatsoever. It's the Pelicans play, excuse me, without giving up any core assets. You're trying to make a, a significant or semi-significant addition. Um, I think a team like Oklahoma city, I know that they're in the throes of a, not the throes. It's a designed rebuild, but they really need shooting and he's not going to go ruin a tank. He just opens the floor for everybody else and allows their ball handlers to do more stuff. When you look at Josh Giddy or, or Trey man, even, even like Darius Baisley and, and Poku. So th- like those are teams over. I, I'm just always going to say that they, you should be willing to take on functional shooting. It's why I don't think Duncan Robinson's trade value is plummeted. He's on the come up, of course, but like these players sign these deals, even Adavis Bertans, I do think he's more overvalued than not, but like Washington also isn't playing him a ton of minutes because their roster isn't built for it. They can't handle his defensive trans transgressions. And they're just sort of like clunky at the four and the five, just so many different options from which to choose. Like those deals, because these players can shoot from ultra deep range, but of course they can shoot coming around screens. And Buddy Heels' case, they can do a little bit of off the dribble shooting. Uh, they have value, and so look at teams that could really stand to to juice up their offense. I suggested this, and I they want to duck the tax, uh, and they're very close to doing so. So maybe they wouldn't look at a Buddy Heel. But is there something to be worked out with with Boston here? Um, they're a team that the offense is perked up while the defense has suffered, but they're still 18th on the year and they're below mediocre when it comes to three point shooting. A lot of that has to do with the level level of difficulty on their looks where it's, you know, a Jason Tatum taking a lot of your threes and you're not stocked with knockdown shooters, Buddy healed sort of gives you that element. And so could, could there be a team like that interested in him? Yes, absolutely. And I would, if you told me the over under on the number of teams that are willing to acquire Buddy Heald without demanding the Pacers give them an asset and while sending something back, whether it's expiring contracts is the value or just low-end draft equity or just sort of a distressed prospect. Let's set the over-under at 4.5. And I think I would take the over on that. I might even go as high as 5.5. So... uh, the shooting is always going to have a spot in the NBA, and it doesn't concern me that the Pacers took on his deal. Some people might look at this and say you normally get some draft equity as part of a, a trade for a two-time All-Star who's also only 25. Uh, those guys do not crop up on the market that often. That being said, you also don't get a guy like Halliburton that often just not even two years into his rookie contract and already showing so much, not just promise, but real impact. He's already making the team that he was on a better player in just so many comprehensive 
uh, modes. Uh, and, you know, maybe you could quibble that, okay, but the Pacers are still rolling the dice and they are taking on Buddy Heald, who is maybe on a net negative contract. They gave up Justin Holiday, who isn't nothing to their rotation. Halliburton is that good and that high end of a prospect. I would say he's worth like 2.5 first round picks slash prospects uh, on his own because having entrenched performers means that much. And especially to a team like the Pacers. So I liked this deal for them unequivocally. I don't hate it for the Kings or I'm at least open-minded to it, but I'm still on the more confused, skeptical. And let's see if we can, you know, blaze through. We have a ton of questions, last minute questions about the uh, trade deadline. Este Rivera in discord, join our discord. As is Julius Randle a good fit for any contender? Whew. The answer to this is overwhelmingly no. Before the Clippers traded for Norman Powell, if you thought they were going to go for it this year and even considered them a contender, I thought just having another on-ball option like him could really help since it, again, since it seems unlikely that they're going to be able to acquire like more of a conventional floor general, he could have helped them. They have Norman Powell now, though, and they still do need someone to play make, but just getting to Julius Randle's money is so tough without, you know, you're replacing effectively Eric Bledsoe with Norman Powell, who you're not trading for Julius Randle. If they wanted to give up Covington and Kennard for Julius Randle, is that something that's going to pique the Knicks' interest? Uh, is it Serge Ibaka and Kennard for Julius Randle? I don't even think that's enough money, actually, to get Randle out of New York because he's making, oh no, he's making 21.8. But you are increasing your tax bill at that point. Is it worth it when he has yet to take yet to play on his four-year $117 million extension. If I were the Knicks, I'd do that deal in a heartbeat. I've also suggested on the pod before the Lakers, I would take back Russell Westbrook to get off Randall. Um, Randall, Fournier, and Kemba Walker for Westbrook. And if the Lakers need to send pick compensation back to New York, all the better. That's something I would absolutely consider. Whether you view the Lakers as contenders is your own prerogative. Right now, I don't know how you think that they would be. But when you look at just like the top contenders in the league, Memphis, Miami, how's that? Memphis was the first team to come out of my mouth because I'm looking at a list of teams, but Memphis, Miami, Milwaukee, uh, do you throw Atlanta in there? If you want to definitely golden state Phoenix, that's a no, no across the board there. Brooklyn, no, uh, Chicago, no, uh, he's not a fit for any contenders. I don't know. I don't know if this was like a, a serious question, but I appreciate it. S.A. Rivera uh, always want to talk some Julius Randall. Retro Brayton asks, which team shouldn't trade for Kendrick Williams? The answer is there isn't a team that shouldn't trade for Kendrick Williams. I know he's very low volume on offense, uh, but this is someone who is basically positionless on defense. I can cover your toughest assignment, and he's shown that. He can put some situational like off-ball pressure on the rim or straight line pressure on the rim and has hit his threes on modest volume at a, at a good enough clip. He's extremely plug-and-play. Uh, getting him out of Oklahoma City, all the reports we've seen is that they want a first-round pick. I doubt that they actually would get one without taking back bad salary. I don't think that's a problem for them because they have like a trillion dollars in cap space. He is, however, to them just so valuable because he's only owed $2 million next year. So this is someone that's not just a rental. He's on a bargain deal through at least next season. Every team should want him, though. I don't know if there's a team that should give up a first-round pick. Uh, you'd be looking at teams that have like their pick this season. Like, is the Warriors one of them? Because you know they're going to end up with number 29. Uh, sure, if you want if you want to go that route. But yeah, I 
I'm going to be curious to see whether he gets moved and what the value is on there. I would expect to be as part of just a bigger trade with three or four teams where maybe, you know, the the primary team in that deal is getting someone else in addition to a Kendrick Williams or um, they're using other teams to get off different types of money or OKC is taking on different types of money to up the compensation they could get. But Braden, yes, everybody should want Kenrich Williams. Uh, Jokic MVP asks, is there any way Utah can retool on the fly before the deadline ends? Who? That's a question we've tried to answer a bunch of times on this podcast. The latest deal I came up with was Jordan Clarkson and Joe Ingles in a 2026 first for Eric Gordon and Jay Sean Tate. I do think the Jazz all of a sudden find themselves in need of um, backup playmaking without Joe Ingles, for one, and that was also kind of a need. In addition to getting more mobile and athletic when it comes to their defensive hierarchy, um, people point out that they could also just use like a really good help rim protector so that Gobert has more freedom to move away from the basket, in which case, I know people have just said, well, then Robert Covington isn't that one-on-one type guy that they need. That would be true, but if you want someone who's just going to be on point with his rotations, do you look at Robert Covington? Should the Clippers be able to move him? Are the Clippers even willing to help a conference rival? My guess would be that's not something that would hold them back just because this season, whatever they're trying to do is not their season. I still stand by, like, is there a deal to be had at this point involving Josh Richardson and Dennis Schroeder? Maybe you don't want him on the Jazz as your backup point guard, uh, but you you need you, you need one at this point. Like Joe Ingles is back, the backup playmaker is is gone. Uh, they Boston looking to get out of the tax does sort of complicate that package. You could use Brian Bogdanovich as the primary bait. I absolutely would not do that. But you have the similar structure of uh, Jordan Clarkson and and Joe Ingles. So can you take back other money? Uh, Dennis Schroeder, Josh Richardson. That's going to get you to about you know, $19 million this season. So can you take back who else might Boston not want just in the mid end salaries? It's a little bit tough there. I think what's more, uh, it bubble, let's just say like the salaries come closer to evening out in that three for two scenario. I just don't think that they're going to be looking to dump Romeo Langford or, or Aaron Neesmith there. Uh, maybe you just get involved the third or fourth team, but it, like Boston isn't, you know, d- maybe they want to get off, Al Horford, but that's, you're not just sending Al Horford somewhere. I know people have mentioned March and I don't know if you're giving up a first round pick for that, like giving up a 2026 first for Josh Richardson and Dennis Schroeder. I've been higher on Josh Richardson's season um, this year than most, but I don't know. That would be tough. Is Boston in love with Jared Butler at all? Um, Do they actually like the idea of having Jordan Carson because they can kind of use another shot creator who's not the Dennis Schroeder type. Carson's not trying to set people up and the downhill pressure, he's going to stall out before the basket more, but he's kind of more of a stabilizing offensive force. I feel like uh, perhaps the bars, like not super high there, but that's another player that, that they could target Josh Richardson primarily, but they do need sort of a backup playmaker at this point. Um, I don't really know where else to go with them. I, they've been mentioned in the, you know, I don't think there's a Harrison Barnes sweepstakes anymore. They've been mentioned the Jeremy Grant sweepstakes. I don't know how they beat out offers unless, you know, no one's giving good offers for Grant, in which case I wonder if Detroit just holds on to him. They could do the 2026 and 2028 picks of their own. That is so risky. And you are better believe that you're not only so win now, which is easy to buy into because the jazz are that good at full strength. 
you have to believe that you're going to be able to pick up the pieces should anything go wrong. And a lot of people are wondering whether there'll be major changes should this team flame out in the playoffs once more. So there are bigger needs, it feels like, on this roster. I just don't know that they're readily addressable. Again, Josh Richardson or the Eric Gordon, Jason Tate scenarios feel like the at least some realistic possibilities. I know people have mentioned Marcus Smart. I just don't know that Utah has the juice to to get him. Uh, I understand that he's about to go on the four-year, $77 million extension or whatever it is, but like that dude is a ridiculously good defender. This is it's a fortunes turning defender, an all defense guy. Like just just lock. I would or at least perennial candidate there. And you can talk about the shooting and erratic playmaking out of the pick and roll. He's still so valuable to what Boston wants to do on the defensive end, can guard effectively one through four, basically. I'd be curious as to what the cost is and matching money gets you two points. I mean like Dennis Schroeder and Marcus Smart, um if you want to have the backup point guarders not uh, Marcus Smart there working Josh Richardson and Mark Smart into the fold this season. That's actually fine. You can do Marcus Smart and Josh Richardson for, I mean, the Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles package, but are you giving up two first round picks 2026 and 2028 for that? If you view Marcus Smart's deal as a net negative, you're not going to do that. I think some people might view Josh Richardson's $12.2 million salary next season as net negative as well. And so I would understand. I, I just don't think one first round pick gets you that deal from um Boston. Marcus Morris could theoretically be interesting. I don't think he's exactly what the Jazz need, but he would certainly he could play some small ball five for you. That's an upgrade over Rudy Gay minutes there if if you're still even going to commit to small spurts of those in the playoffs. And you could definitely play four with him next to Gobert. Uh, what what do the Clippers want for him? I, like, are you, I, look, it comes down to you. You're gonna give up your 2026 first round pick for Marcus Morris. Like, that's your best asset because I don't know that the Clippers would value a Jordan Clarkson since he's not an actual point guard. Uh, it certainly would. It could shave a little bit off their tax bill. Uh, Marcus Morris is making what is he at this season? 15, I think something. Let me go to the salary sheets here. 15.6 million, and so Jordan Clarkson. For Mark, for Jordan, for Mark Morris would work straight up, but if you're the Jazz, are you adding to your own tax bill? Like that's just something that you would have to consider. And I just don't know that that's enough to get the the Clippers to part with him. The Jazz are in the market for players that every team is probably uh, prioritizing. I'd be curious what the asking price is for Josh Hart in Portland. Are you giving up a 2026 first for Josh Hart again? That's what a lot of these questions are coming down to. Portland has no need for Jordan Clarkson long term, even if they're willing to take on his money as part. Of that deal, you could look for lower end options like a Tory Craig, who's still in Indiana. Um, but I think you have to ask yourself: Can this player be top eight, top nine guy in a playoff rotation? Tory Craig is just iffy. Is he hitting his threes? How much offensive rebounding is he providing you with? In addition to to all that defense, Utah's in an interesting spot, and I think they need to be aggressive at the deadline. Uh, we have two questions on the Thunder. Christopher from Discord asks: What contract dump do you see the Thunder taking on, and how many draft picks are they getting for it? Maybe that's tongue-in-cheek a little bit uh, because they have a kabillion draft picks. They're going to take on some money, and they're going to end up with plus draft picks at the the deadline because that's what always happens. Given how much cap space they have, which is, I think, almost $36 million. It's over 35, It's over $35 million. There are going to be a lot of people that you know 
moving other players out of there, like they can take back some real money or the Sixers going to look to dump Tobias Harris as part of a Ben Simmons trade. Or what if they're just planning in advance of a James Harden pursuit? I would be somewhat surprised if anything that drastic happens. It feels like they'll wind up taking on money as sort of like smaller mid-end money as the third or fourth team facilitator in a trade where a contender needs to trade out a lopsided number of players. And, you know, you look at the contenders who are going to be the most aggressive on the market, like an OKC could help out a deal uh, with Atlanta, should they decide to consolidate. Even a Toronto, um, they've been shopping the Goran Dragic plus a first round pick, but if they need to include like a Malachi Flynn or if a team really wants to cut costs, and they don't want Dragic, like, is there a compensation that could be sent to OKC? So if they get a larger salary, I would almost expect it to be an expiring contract. Uh, there's also, but I would more so think it's like, is this going to be the, you know, like a Phoenix with Dario Saric? Can they be, if the team that Phoenix is trading with doesn't want Saric recovering from a torn ACL this year, it can definitely help a team next year, I think, but maybe they just don't want his mid-level-ish money on the books. Is OKC willing to take on that? What would be the cost of it? Is is it a second round pick? So that would be more my guess is that OKC won't take on any money. This is just a prediction. I'm not saying they're unwilling. They won't take on any money that sits on their books beyond next season. And so these like long-term deals that maybe you expect them to absorb, it would surprise me more if uh, if that actually came to fruition. Maybe we'll be shocked just because we've seen it um, just with this deadline, like I don't think a lot of people expected the biggest fireworks to happen so early on when we're not that close to Thursday. Uh, I also thought about could there be a team like the New York Knicks that's looking to get out of some of its newer money, aka Evan Fournier? Uh, there might be teams that actually value Fournier, and maybe that's what if they're going to take on longer term money, you look at players that you could sort of rehab their value. I don't think it needs to be a buddy healed, uh, that would not be someone that I think actually needs a rehab as value in OKC, though maybe they could boost it. But an Evan Fournier um, might be one. Tim Hardaway Jr., someone who's injured maybe for the rest of this year, is how much is Dallas looking to clear off their books because they have Jalen Brunson and Dorian Finney-Smith entering free agency? And what are they willing to grease the wheels with? Would they give you a 2025 first-round pick and Josh Green to take on Tim Hardaway Jr.? and then that's also a player who helps you with shooting and you could theoretically rehab his value much like he did during his contract year in Dallas that earned him the the deal that he's on that currently looks so terrible. So I, I'm very, very intrigued to see how, what OKC does because it will invariably be something. And I think it will be as a facilitator that again, my prediction will be they're either taking on largest short-term money, uh, AK expiring salary, like these bigger expiring salaries, or we're looking at maybe mid-end dumps or absor- like them sponging up mid-end dollars that extend through next season, but don't go any longer on the books. Uh, we did have another question from Brandon Ebert about the Thunder. Is there a move, a team like the Thunder, who are naturally viewed as sellers and will take on large, large contracts for picks? How funny is that? That could be done to actually improve their roster going forward. I kind of hinted at this before with them, but it's shooting. Um, can they just sort of open up the floor for everyone in the half court more? I mentioned Buddy Heald already would be an interesting acquisition for them. I wouldn't say no to Evan Fournier if the Knicks were definitely looking to get rid of him. Uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. is different. He's injured right now. 
I'm also just wondering, like, is there a distressed young shooter that maybe they should be willing to take a flyer on? And I don't mean distressed in the sense of worthless, but just like, oh, this guy, we, we don't really know what he can be. Um, let's get him in here, though. And, and maybe he just proves that he's a lot better than expected. And I'm not thinking of like a Rui Hachimura in Washington who should not like that dude should probably be banned from taking uh, threes at this point. Uh, no one's bringing to mind there, but I'm just going to keep coming back to Buddy Heald with them apparently. Um, but yeah, shooting if they wanted to, I mean, are the heat looking to get rid of Duncan Robinson or are they trying to, there was a report they were trying to make a play for Christian Wood. They would have to move Duncan Robinson as part of that deal. And is OKC just trying to get involved there. Um, those are the types of players. I thought they should have made a run at Garrison Matthews and free agency this past summer. I think that unless I call it a victory lap, but that's certainly something, uh, they, they could, like clearly should have done. Um, you know, they're just trying to think if there's a, like a Luke Kennard, if, if, if Los Angeles is really looking to get off of his money, which that extension, it never looked so bad when you looked at the guarantees, but uh, it looks better now. And maybe with the acquisition of Norman Powell, them wanting more of a ball handler, or they just looking to cut their tax bill. Do you take on him? Like he is someone who can really just help your offense. So yeah, that's, that's where I pretty much land. Maybe a Malik Beasley from Minnesota is another one. Again, I'm not giving up value from OKC to take these players. Um, I'm absorbing them probably not outright, but as part of these other deals. And that would be most of these are longer term money than I predicted that OKC would actually absorb, but I would take these players to help facilitate other deals because they could really help my team. If there's a, a, a would be seller that we could see becoming like a surprise buyer at the deadline at this point. I mean, I think the, the Kings and the Pelicans kind of took two off the board. And it's funny just because, this, the Pelicans are always going to be buyers. We didn't know what the Kings were going to do. So there's definitely that to consider. Portland might be the answer here just because they're all of a sudden being linked to, to Jeremy Grant um, because they want to have like this expedited rebuild or retooling or whatever you call it. I think also Washington could be a surprise buyer. They were interested in some bonus. Um, Beal is going to be out for the season now with a wrist injury. So you would probably argue against them doing that. And a lot of people might think that, hey, should you get off of... Uh, get off of Spencer Dinwiddie now since the fit has been so tenuous. He'd probably rehab some of his value now that Beal is gone, to be honest with you. His minutes without Beal have looked better for the most part this season. Uh, but, you know, they have Contavious Cobble-Pope. They have Kyle Kuzma. They have Denny Avdia. They, they look like they're planning on keeping Beal beyond this season. Do they look like they do something frisky? And this doesn't count because Toronto is not going to be a seller, but they are the team that I'm just looking at. And I'm like, they could do something big. They're the middle rung playoff team right now. That feels like they are one player away from being just a lot more than that. So um, that's yeah. Let's go with Washington as the most, and I'll throw Portland in there too, is like the other most likely sellers. We've seen Portland sell already that could wind up being buyers before Thursday, 3 PM summers asked, how would you compare the values of Anthony Davis and Bradley Beal? If their team wanted to sell on them this coming season, does one command a much bigger package? This is interesting. Both of them are 28. I do believe Anthony Davis is the more transcendent player, but teams are going to place higher premiums on shot creation. And Bradley Beal could still be not just a point of attack score, but, like the engine of your offense there. No, you don't want him to be your point guard. And we've seen some like weird fits with him and Spencer Dinwiddie this year. He's also not been great when shooting at threes, but we know he can hit threes at a higher clip than that. The other thing that could factor into this, uh, Beal's having a season ending wrist injury right now. It has a season season ending wrist injury right now. This feels weird to say that, but like Andy Davis is more injury prone. 
the other thing here is if we want to go deeper into this, if you're acquiring Bradley Beal this summer, here's what's happened. It's either as part of a sign-in trade, so he's on this longer-term contract, or it's an opt-in-in trade. Um, and that just implies that he's willing to sign a contract with you long-term because why would he leave you know so many long-term years on the table if he didn't want to play for that team? Or he signed with you outright, which there are no teams that project to have cap space. I would predict that for, in which case you have him for uh, a ton of years. But this was a trade. So it's either an opt-in trade, which he's not going to a team that doesn't know it, it will resign him long-term, or it's an actual sign-in trade where he's under lock and key long-term. Davis can become a free agent again in two seasons, and that could matter if, if you're a team that's going to factor into how much you're giving up to get him. And knowing how much the, the Lakers forked over to nab him, and if they were actually looking to rebuild when they are barren of like real pick and prospect equity moving forward, that would just be a tough negotiation. So I would say Beal will command the better package just because he's under contract for, he would be under contract for longer or about to be, whereas Anthony Davis could theoretically pose more of a, a flight risk. Maybe he would pick the team that he's going to, but I I would still say Beal. I think that the priority is always going to be on the guys who can generate their own offense more consistently and efficiently. That's just not Anthony Davis's game, and I, I love Anthony Davis. Look, while on the subject of this, Patrick France 92 asks, what is wrong with the Lakers? How many hours do we have? Very quickly, I think it's the, the Russell Westbrook trade is a symptom of a larger disease that was last offseason. Not their decision not to make the Buddy Heel trade, obviously, and go for Westbrook in general, but you got rid of two of your your two leading three-point shot makers in Kuzma and KCP. You also got rid of two solid perimeter defenders, given what Kuzma had become for them. Montrez Harrell was not a great fit, but like he was still an actual rotation player. And there was also a first-round pick included that you gave up. So you consolidated your rotation into a player who I think we need to reach a middle ground. I don't think Russ is as, is like willing to change, but it, he has adapted his game um, just to the point where he's not as much of a focal point. It just, he has not looked capable of thriving within that role. And he probably needs to adapt even further, but you consolidated all of these actual rotation players into someone who always was a questionable fit at best and has now proved to be a terrible fit. I don't blame Russ as much as I do the front office. You also let Alex Caruso go. So now you're in this position where you don't, you have this, your, you know, one of your three highest paid players is not an asset to you. You can't play with your best player in LeBron James. Like there's just no clear chemistry there. He's not performing well when LeBron is off the court either. Uh, and you, you have this glaring lack of two-way players. Uh, you have so many one-dimensional players who are only going to help you at one end, but then you also just have a bunch of aging guys in, in outsized roles. And I think that this is all combined that plus the decisions made, the moves not made is really just coming back to to haunt them at this juncture. They are still going to be a threat if LeBron and AD are healthy in the playoffs, but I, I think Shaq said that the Lakers are right where they want to be because they'd rather face Phoenix than Golden State in the first round. All right, that's sort of just a pick-your-poison situation. You're going to die in that series anyway. So uh, that's what's wrong with the Lakers to me. I don't know if they can do anything. The 2027 or 2028 first-round pick plus Talon Horton Tucker, plus Kendrick Nunn packages has probably been shopped to no end. I, I would be f- just absolutely like mind boggled if that gets them a Jeremy Grant um, or if there were other moving parts that could help them get a Harrison Barnes should the Kings even move him. I've, my belief is that they would probably top out at an Eric Gordon type acquisition. That's assuming Houston wants to just short the Lakers future so far in advance. I don't think that's a bad 
idea, to be clear. I just don't think most front offices have the the stability to do that. And so if you can't make that move, or you, is there a team that wants Russ is willing to let you divest into players who aren't on the team friendliest deals, but you've broken them up into smaller contracts. Are you willing to include a first round pick as part of that equation? This isn't going from Russ to John Wall. It is like I was outlining. I think we outlined these trades here is that if you traded Russ to Houston um, with some minimum contracts to take back the four players in Nawaba, Tice, uh, Eric Gordon, and I forget who the other person was, uh, DJ Augustine, just looking at their mid-end salaries, or trading him to the Knicks with minimum contracts for Julius Randle, Evan Fournier, and Kemba Walker. Are those types of deals out there? I honestly don't know. Failing all of that, you need to hope that you just get lucky on the buyout market. You need wings. Uh, you need two-way players in general. Those are not players that you're just going to find on the buyout market. You could wind up perhaps deepening your rotation, though. And you, We've seen Malik Monk emerge. Town Horton Tucker has had higher highs in recent weeks, uh, but I still don't, you know, the fact that they're turning to him for off-ball offense and crunch time before Russell Westbrook is, that's not really encouraging so much as uh, just indicative of how poor of a fit Russ has been. And you know, Harrison Fagan pointed this out for silver screen and roll. Russ is clearly in his head at points in the game, and he might be throwing shade in post-game interviews and what he's saying to AD and LeBron on the bench, but he just looks out of sorts, which which really sucks because Russ at his peak was a great player. And I don't think he's been as stubborn this season as many people believe. I just don't think he's effective um, even when he's sort of adapting his role. Uh, we have a few more questions here. Let me get through them because then I'll be able to get to every question. Um, but Hoop Informatist sent a bunch. I'm going to settle on th- this one. Uh, what's the greatest market inefficiency in the trade market in terms of low cost per impact provided through acquiring? So I'm assuming that we can take contracts out of the equation here. I think that there's like this stigma against players who are on the perimeter, but they're not quite wings, and yet they don't necessarily have the ball skills of lead guards. They are, you can call them two guards, what if you will, but the the Norman Powells, for instance, based off how his the final four years of this five-year $90 million deal were being viewed, clearly, if, if the Blazers only got what they did for him. Or even in Eric Gordon, when there's questions about, oh, how's that final year of his deal? or final guaranteed yields, final guaranteed year so far going to look uh, when that he's, when he is going to be age 34 next year, when he's had some injury histories, when he doesn't, you know, he's passed this year, but like you don't want him running your offense. Uh, even just the way that Marcus Smart's contract has been viewed, or even something like a Josh Richardson who can shoot and defend, but you don't want him operating off the dribble too much. I think we can place more stock in those players. Richardson has been valued more highly more recently because just like three and D being an actual wing size. And Marcus smart is probably on the more extreme end of the spectrum, but it seems like as these players get paid is what I'm getting at. They're not viewed as, as valuable previously. And I know that can be the case with any player who gets a big contract, but for these sort of archetype of players specifically, maybe there's a real hole in their game. Like we just talked about with, with Gordon and Norm Powell, you don't want Norm Powell running your offense. Maybe some situational pick and roll is sure but you want him attacking the basket or shooting threes. There's a shit ton of value in doing or in providing rim pressure and consistent three-point shooting. That's exactly what Eric Gordon does. I think with Marcus Smart guarding up and down the positional spectrum and the fact that he's comfortable taking off the dribble jumpers. He's been probably, I haven't looked at this in a, a week or two, but the least efficient off the dribble jump shooter this season, but he's also had 
years where he's been, I think it was two years ago, he hit like 40-something percent of his off-the-dribble triples on real volume. Not part of his strengths necessarily, but there's value. And yeah, he could be sloppy in the pick and roll, but this is someone who could still dribble and run the offense better than a Norman Powell. And so once you get to like those, what do you say, like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, guys, I would say maybe even 6'2", um, depending on like their build, who are not even like they're not even the CJ McCollum's because maybe you just don't trust their ball skills as much as a maestro. I um, mean, even CJ McCollum just might fall into here. Is those tweener guards? Is tweener even a word? But that's really what I'm what I'm envisioning here. And I'm interested to see hoop informatics if if you agree or what you would pick. This one uh, is one I had given some thought to, but is is pretty off the cuff. I've not you know I think there are certain types of bigs. That could fall under this umbrella, but that's just too easy. And we still see players get paid based off size. We know that teams are going to give up a premium for three and D wings. But I do think if guys either can't like dribble east west or be the lead playmaker of your offense, if they can do a bunch of other things, uh, they're still hyper valuable. I also thought about going sort of with functional shooting specialists where a Duncan Robinson or a Buddy Heald, you don't want them to put the ball on the floor, but the fact that they will work their asses off, off the ball, uh, I'll say that for Duncan Robinson, at least buddy, he will go through the motions with that, but perhaps he'll be in a better mood now that he's out of Sacramento, even at Davis Bertans at points, as these players get paid, they're viewed as these net negative contracts. All of a sudden, I think we've talked about all of them on this podcast. I still think like the, the Eric Gordon's the, and the, the Norman Powell's like, those are the guys. And, uh, you can be worried about how they'll age because of their athleticism. But when they're also like sort of stronger, um, they can do other things with their shooting. But Eric Gordon has shown that you know, he is still quick, but like he's not nearly as explosive as he once was. And so that that's where I would really settle on uh, for that. I believe, how many questions do we have left here? Two? Um, let's see if we can get to them. Do the Suns have weaknesses? That is by the NBA chicken. They are buzzsaw when healthy. What do you think gives them the most trouble in a playoff series? I do believe that they could still be sort of beaten up with length. And so if you go up against Milwaukee, it's not the ideal situation. I think that can be neutralized though. And that'll get me to their, what I think is their real void. Um, Listen to the timeline podcast at blue wire too. They'll probably have better insight to this than I do, but just like a third ball handler, uh, it could be a wing. It could be a guard. At this point, they're they're big man heavy. So if you're targeting a ball handling big man, I don't know, like is that <laughs> that point of attack big man is not something that they should be going after. Uh, Eric Gordon's been mentioned a ton with them. Dennis Schroeder has been tangentially mentioned among Sung's Twitter, I believe. I don't know. Eric Gordon would be. I've said this on the podcast before. Just the perfect addition for them. But I, I, I think that you could go even smaller scale. But they also are banged up at the guard position right now. Cameron Payne's dealing with the an injury. He's been better before that injury, but he's not having like as good of a season as he was last year. Landry Shamit, who I believe is also injured at the moment, he's been blah this year. And so they could stand to upgrade those types of minutes and preferably with someone. This is where Gordon would come in. He doesn't need to be a wing, but can you get away with playing him alongside both book and Paul? And does he put more pressure on the rim than those guys? So that's where Kendrick Williams, also a name that's been mentioned specifically on this podcast since you know, last off season, by the way, uh, not a victory lap, but we have been banging the Kendrick Williams to Phoenix drum for quite some time. Predominantly want him off the ball or working in straight lines. Um, the fact that he just gives you so much positional malleability on the defensive end, he would be another guy 
that you can look at. I thought briefly, and I think I, I actually think I mentioned this in the offseason preview we did with the timeline, fellas, of a Josh Richardson for this team. I just don't think he provides enough of the ball handling. Like, he'll give you a lot of defensive options. Um, and, and we'll space the floor. And so like, yeah, okay. You've upgraded the Landry Shamit minutes if you're acquiring him, but you don't want, uh, Josh Richardson running your offense there. Uh, they're just the, the player that they need, like Eric, I think I have tunnel vision because Eric Gordon feels so perfect for that type of a role that I can't necessarily think of, of anyone else that they should be going after. But yeah, I mean, that, that would be where you could go with that. I guess maybe if Memphis was like willing to deal the Anthony Melton, but spoiler alert, I don't think that they would be, you could probably talk yourself into Malik Beasley a little bit, but I don't know if I'm just sort of overweighting the ball handling. Alec Burks would be good for this team. I think he was a free agent target for them way back when, uh, not this past summer, or maybe he was this past summer, but the summer before that, when he ended up signing with the Knicks, uh, they could definitely go that route with him. I don't think a Kemba would re- like, that's just going from campaign to Kemba. You're not playing. You could probably get away with playing Burks alongside Booker and CP three. Um, but Burks probably doesn't provide enough rim pressure, but he has shown he can like not be totally mutilated when he's defending on the wings against certain players. A Fournier would be a no for me. Just go- going through Knicks there because they have so many of those pieces. Uh, Gary Harris doesn't have enough ball handling, even though he's shooting better on drives this season also makes just so much money, which is Phoenix has the flexibility under the tax um, to do some things, but they really have to step ladder their way to get there. Uh, The timeline folks, when they came on this podcast mentioned Harrison Barnes, Uh, don't think Sacramento is going to move him now. And that's probably a trade where you actually have to give up like more tangible assets. And are you willing to give up Cam Johnson at this point would be the name plus other stuff, obviously for Harrison Barnes. I don't know if they'd be willing to, to do that. A lot of people have mentioned Jeremy Grant. Again, I think you run into an asset problem. I also don't think he has enough ball skills to really help. He would help. I mean, like we've seen that he could work in ISO, but I don't know playoff setting him on the ball. Uh, I would prefer them to have Eric Gordon versus a uh, Jeremy Grant, even though Grant opens up a ton of them for them defensively. And maybe you consider him someone who's more likely to crack closing lineups. Uh, I do not know. The not a Danilo Gallinari. I don't even know why Atlanta would be like, they're probably looking to buy in that scenario. And that's just, that's so much money too. Um, Sacramento is if anyone they would be interested in. They're, they're probably, I know people mentioned that he is young, but that's like, again, we're, I think they're set uh, at the four or five spots right now. Derek white might be interesting. Um, I would be curious what the cost would be to get him. If you're Phoenix, Wrap it up here. I promise we're slogging through this. Would you give up two first round picks, future first round picks, at least one of which would post date um, CP3's current contract, the 2026 first round pick plus your 2024 one? If that was the crux, would you would you do it? And you can get to Derek White's money. I think I think you just need Sarich and Jalen Smith, and so you're banking on the Spurs just prioritizing those first rounders. Who knows if they if they do that, but, uh, that's the route you could go. You could also fold Landry Shamit, the poison pill, uh, extension into some of these deals that you're looking at probably better. If you're taking back higher salaried players, uh, I would consider with Derek white being at nearly 16 million, he could be among them. You also have the option of moving Cameron Payne If you want to just looking at the number, he's not irreplaceable and teams will be willing to digest. Um, he is, he's guaranteed $6 million next year. And then the final season of his, 
contract is non guaranteed. So yeah, there's there's at least like some solutions out there. Eric Gordon's the perfect one. I am curious to see what Phoenix does at the deadline, if anything. They're the best team in the league right now. And so maybe they sort of prioritize standing pat. But I do think that they have an actual void where they could really use some rim pressure or just more ball handling to um, break down length in the playoffs. And I'm really thinking specifically about the the Bucks for the most part. And there are other teams, of course, the Warriors among them that could give them problems in the playoffs. So I'm thinking specifically about those matchups. Last, let's go two more questions here. Um, what team do you expect to be the most aggressive at the deadline? Probably just Philly. This is from, sorry, that's from Kay Fletch. Uh, I actually maybe it's Phoenix just because they sense their window is now, but I don't, I feel like we haven't heard enough rumblings out of them to, it, it feels like it, it'll be just a minor move. Like the, the Tory Craig move of last season, or do they just view like the midseason acquisition of Bismack, Bismack Biombo as the, the move for them. Um, Philly, just because I'm sure they're in all these Ben Simmons trade talks. If you're kind of looking for like a, not a cut below, but like a less obvious example of a team that, is really seeking upgrades. I want it to be Toronto. It's Utah. I don't mean to step on the toes of Utah again, but I, I think it's Utah. Um, them or maybe Chicago, just seeing Cleveland having loaded up. What's going on in Brooklyn? You do have to consider if they're at full strength. The Bucks look like they're playing better of, of late after they're in Malaysia. You have Atlanta perking up. Boston is perking up. Does that motivate Chicago even with injuries to Alonzo Ball and Alex Caruso to do something? I'd be against making the Patrick Williams all-in special offer this uh trade deadline especially i just don't know what players are available that are worth that but can you get someone like a josh richardson or a marcus morris would help this team a ton and so i'm going to say chicago or utah will be the most aggressive i wish that it was toronto or memphis the two teams that i'm i think have actual assets to move and i feel like are one player away from being really special uh i did want to mention the box because the reason we're recording this podcast is because ty windish of the Eurostep podcast you should check them out also a blue wire podcast they cover the milwaukee bucks acts that there could be another hard one knocks i don't know if he actually gonna listen to this i don't know how often he listens to us i know he helps promote us and i appreciate anyone who listens especially when they cover one specific team really i think it means a lot that people tune into a national podcast when we're at a time where localized coverage means a lot and it should mean a lot. And it's a, it's a great time um, for podcasters and writers covering a specific team. And they're able to provide just such good insight the, the Eurostep among them. But for me personally, I like covering the league at large, even though it can be stressful and exhausting at times. And it does mean the world to me not to be too gooey and mushy um, when people who are predominantly covering one team, even though if you're a fan of the NBA or one team in the NBA, you do kind of find yourself following along with everyone else. The fact that anyone listens or would even consider our existence is, is pretty cool, but I'm just going to talk some Milwaukee Bucks trade. I, I came up with a Milwaukee Bucks trade specifically for Ty Windish. And there's really two. If the Toronto Raptors go out and get Rashawn Holmes, uh, because I think that they should, uh, and he's a great fit there. And because the Kings have Domas Sabonis on the roster now, can you get Chris Boucher? I know he's like not the typical big, but he's been defending so well this season. He said he was not defending well last season. I thought he was pretty good defensively. So that's either he's too hard on himself or I suck at my job. Maybe somewhere in the middle, I would lean towards I suck at my job. But he kind of not three ball isn't falling, but he spaces the floor in general. And I think over the past couple of years, he's gotten better at navigating off the ball when going to the basket. If you wanted to use him as sort of a, a rim runner, but you could play him with Giannis, you could play him with Portis, you could play him with Brooke Lopez if you want to. 
Um, the trade that I actually had, trying to find the Bucks a big man, and just going back, watching a little bit of Dante DiVincenzo, um, specifically asked after I listened to the latest Eurostep podcast, where if you want to really get into the, the the nuts and bolts of Greg Monroe's body composition, that episode of the podcast is for you. They got into a lot of other cool stuff, obviously. If Milwaukee's dead set on getting a big, I don't think they're going to be able to find like their PJ Tucker replacement. Although maybe I had like a like a poor man's poor man's PJ Tucker replacement here. Let's talk about the Knicks. I have no idea what the fuck is going to happen in Brooklyn. Like the uh, James Harden, I think he does want out. Kyrie Irving is playing like every eighth game, or like and he wouldn't be available if they're in the play-in tournament. It's just, like they have injuries galore between Joe Harris. Um, LaMarcus Aldridge is banged up. Their front court rotation is a mishmash. They have Nicholas Claxton headed towards free agency. I wouldn't get rid of him because he's so important to their switching defense, and they have to switch on defense when they're at full strength. But they're not at full strength, and Claxton's hardly ever at full strength. And he is entering free agency, uh, restricted free agency, so they have the rights to match. However, they do need like more two-way-ish players on the perimeter, and I know Dante DiVincenzo's been bad this year. I'm willing to give him a little bit of a grace period given how much time he's missed. If you don't put the ball in his hands that often, he can still give you some impact as a mover and shaker uh, away from it. And I I just feel like his standstill three-point clip, while I've not checked it specifically, his three-point numbers are not pretty. They are actually the opposite of pretty. I just feel like he could help that team. And his defensive range would certainly help that team, someone who you could say, Hey, I'm going to play him with Bruce Brown and or Deandre Bembry. Um, and that doesn't make me feel like shit about shrinking the floor on the offensive side, which I think it, you probably do feel a little crappy if it's Bruce Brown, uh, and, um, Deandre Bembry playing at the same time, which has happened a little bit this season. So the structure here is Dante DiVincenzo, who I, th- I do think probably has less value than Claxton, even though he like fills, or is more an archetype of player teams would be more inclined to invest in. But Dante DiVincenzo and that 2025 Indiana second-round pick for Nicholas Claxton and Javon Carter. The thought process here is maybe the Bucks want another guard with DiVincenzo leaving. Carter is shooting the ball well over the past few games, and the, the Nets have needed to play him because they're so banged up, and you don't have Harden, you don't have Kyrie. Uh, but the thought process here is Brooklyn actually shaves money and creates a roster spot with the move. And um, the Bucks added their tax bill a little bit, but maybe the Nets are more concerned with their tax uh, tax bill. Milwaukee can also try and jettison one of their other minimum contracts into, hey, maybe it's OKC's, give them something so that they're net neutral in the salary department here. But that works, and Brooklyn gets out of the final year of Javon Carter's deal, which is worth only $3.9 million, but again, their tax bill is, is through the roof. And maybe Milwaukee just like, that dude will defend his butt off end to end. And if he's going to hit threes, like bubble Javon Carter, that dude was a cap lock problem. I would love that for, I think, both sides, if you're going to move Claxton because you have faith that, okay, um, LaMarcus Aldridge is going to be healthy. We trust Blake Griffin. We think we can get real run out of Dayron Sharp. Maybe it all fall, falls apart there. If you're looking to sweeten the process for Brooklyn here, um, and look, Milwaukee is part of this. You wouldn't keep Greg Monroe around so that you do have that roster to play around with. But if you can continue to find other teams to help you, get rid of another one of your minimum contracts. Maybe it's a Rodney Hood, Shemi Oljale, and then take back as part of a separate just transaction because they're all on minimums, James Johnson or Paul Millsap. Paul Millsap would almost be ideal. Uh, he has not looked great this season. He's also not with the Nets at this point because he wasn't really 
playing. And I think he was more helpful to Denver last year than people credit him with. And if you're just trying to load up on your front court with different types of options and you walk away with Paul Millsap and or James Johnson, but James Johnson has been playing for the Nets again because they're so banged up up front, including with stuff Nicholas Claxton was previously dealing with, but also LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, Paul Millsap, uh, Javon Carter, and um, excuse me, Nicholas Claxton, uh, Javon Carter, Paul Millsap, Nicholas Claxton for Dante DiVincenzo, break it up into transactions, and in the second round pick. If you need to give up another second round pick as the Bucks, I would still do it. I like Claxton's fit there that much. Uh, not the largest center, but he can just really move around the floor and he can lock down point guards. And so, you know, that I'm just imagining Claxton playing with Giannis, imagining him playing with Portis. That's something that I could envision working really well. I don't know how much the Nets value Claxton. They should highly, but if they believe in Dante DiVincenzo and they know that they really need like players who are twos slash maybe can guard up to threes or even help them out defensively at the one, like just two guys who can actually profile as two-way players on the perimeter, aside from KD and Joe Harris, two-way players on the perimeter. Let me make that, because it's not, yeah, Cameron Thomas, great, one way. Kyrie Irving, not going to be, but he's healthy even as like beacon of defense. Ditto for James Harden. If they acquire Ben Simmons, I don't know if that makes it more or less intriguing for them to do this deal. I might argue that it's more intriguing because then Ben Simmons is there to sort of anchor your defense. Um, but yeah, I if I think Nicholas Claxton is like the I don't think he's been he's been talked about as someone who's available. I don't know if they've talked about him on the Eurostep podcast previously, but Ty, I might tag you in this when I promote it. But what do you think of my Dante DiVincenzo second round pick for uh Javon Carter and Nicholas Claxton? That is the basis of it. Nets fans, you can get at me there. And also to sweeten it for Brooklyn, you further cut your tax bill would create a second roster spot, force Milwaukee to find a way to send someone else out. Um, maybe two someones if they want their tax bill to remain net neutral, like I said. Um, and then you send them back Paul Millsap as well. And if, if I'm Milwaukee, I actually might even prefer that scenario. I don't know what it would take to give Rodney Hood to OKC or Shemi Oldrelay to OKC or just you know another one one of those players to another team. That is the framework here that I am thinking, and I believe that is all the questions that we actually had i'm going to scroll through this really quick because i might as well finish it every single one of these questions if uh if we have them nope i believe i got to all of them oh this is the last this is our final one what team is always active at the deadline i i needed to have researched a question like this i think i saw a study though that in the history it's actually the new orleans franchise that is averaging the most trades per year uh, their existence was shorter. And this was a few years ago that I saw it. If I had to ballpark it, I feel like we always see stuff happen in Toronto, Cleveland. Or does it feel like Orlando is always doing something at the deadline without, without even looking? I want to know your answer. Get at me at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E, or at Hardwood Knox. My official answer is just going to be, is it even like, I just feel like in years past, Memphis was really frisky. Um, I'm going to say Cleveland or Toronto or Orlando, one of those three teams. But who would you pick? That's without looking at, at anything, and maybe there's just like not a great base for that. I think some of the teams, we know it's not the Spurs, if that's any consolation. And look, we know it's not the Celtics. Danny Ainge was the the sultan of almost. Uh, hashtag sorry, Utah Jazz fans, if you, if you hear a lot of like could have been trades after the deadline. If you've made it this far, thanks for 
sticking along. I hope none of this is outdated. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have not subscribed to us, please consider giving us the permanent subscription. Uh, we do try and cover the league as best we can around here. And I think, look, I'm very reticent to compliment myself and this podcast at large. We do a pretty fucking cool job, good job, thorough job of covering the entire NBA. So join us, follow along with us. We, we love doing this. We do work really hard at it. And we're trying to just continue to grow. The audience has been the focus this season. So yeah, Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox on Twitter at Hardwood underscore Knox on IG. Our discord link is in the podcast description as is our YouTube channel. So go follow us there as well. And any word of mouth recommendations slash, I don't care where you listen to us, but throw us those ratings and reviews on iTunes. They help out a ton. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only. He should probably be traded to a contender so that they can bolster their championship chances with his lockdown defenses. Frank Nielakina. <laughs> <laughs>